My name is Taylor Reevely, and it's good to be with you again. We were gone last week, out of town on um, uh, first vacation in a long time, and missed you terribly. So it's good to be back. Um, and one of the things that we just we had a wonderful time. We came back ready to go. We're we're excited to be here. Um, when you were in school as a child, you probably learned in one of your first classes about the five senses, right? Can you, can you name those five senses that humans have? Sight, smell, not stink, hearing, touch, and taste. Good. So you have been equipped to make sense of the world around you, that you would, one, understand it, that you would respond appropriately in it, what happens then when one of those senses is removed? Okay, perhaps it's temporary. Perhaps you got COVID-19 and you lost your ability to smell. Perhaps in, in, in the case of uh, Daredevil, the Marvel series, um, Matt Murdock has no sight. He's a blind attorney by day, but he's a vigilante by night. And it's because of this kind of miraculous thing that the body does where it fills in the information, the missing input with the other senses. The other senses are heightened. And so what you see in this series of daredevils, you see um, him walking around throughout the day with his cane and his sunglasses. And then at night, he puts this mask over his eyes and just goes and cleans up all the bad guys. And the show highlights for you, tries at least to, to show this is what he heard that made him imagine, envisioning this thing that he otherwise couldn't see. This is what he smelled and how he knew that the guy was getting close. And this morning, what, we're, what we are witnessing as we follow Jesus in his journey toward Jerusalem are some men who are missing that sense of sight. And in particular, you'll notice that their sense of hearing is amplified, but also their sense of faith in that they see in Jesus something that the normal human would miss because they are missing the sense and depend on Him for faith. So would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. As we conclude the chapter, beginning in verse 29, and you can follow along with me on the screen or in the Bible in front of you at the conclusion here of Matthew chapter 20. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. 
Now, we've followed Jesus around for a while now, and we've encountered a number of different crowds, and almost exclusively, the crowds that have followed Jesus did not recognize him for who he really was. The religious leaders that we encountered recently were blind to his nature. The rich man did not see his value. Even last week, two of his own disciples did not recognize him as he truly was. No, no, it is the blind who see Jesus as the merciful king. It's the blind, the ones without sight that see him and recognize him for who he really is. It requires, in some sense, a a self-awareness of one's own insufficiency to recognize Jesus, to treasure Him for who He is. It's the poor in spirit that receive the kingdom of heaven because they're the ones who, like the children, who, like the blind men, come to Jesus in their need. And what we're going to do this morning as we work to understand this reality and allow it to form our understanding of Jesus, is we're going to imagine the story from three different vantage points, okay? And it's going to take a little bit of imagination to color in some of the detail. But we're going to use our senses to consider what the blind men saw, their experience of this story. Then second, what the crowd saw and their experience of the story. And then finally what Jesus saw in his experience of the story. Because at the end of the day, we want the vision, the sight of the blind men in order that we would see Jesus for who he is. So first, consider with me what the blind men see. Okay? On the one hand, that is a very easy question to answer. They see nothing. Okay? Next point. What is the crowd's... I'm just kidding. No. Um, the blind men see nothing. They're actually blind, okay? We don't know if they're blind from birth. We don't know if this is an accident that has happened. But to have a disability in this day would have immobilized a person in society. These men could not work. Their livelihood was, as it describes, sitting by the road, presumably hoping that someone would be generous enough to hand them something so they could eat bread. So they see nothing, but their sense of hearing is amplified then. And you can imagine this. They hear a crowd on the horizon making its way, making its march out of Jericho on the annual pilgrimage toward Jerusalem. They do this every year, and they hear them. But they hear something unique this time in the clamor of the crowd. Jesus is among them. It says that they heard that Jesus was passing by. Now, the the human means by which you filter that information through your senses is you have this value grid and you, you tune out information that's not helpful for you, for survival, generally. In this case, you've got... Uh, The bustle and all the chaos of the crowd that's migrating past this man, they only heard and saw, they only heard and understood and interpreted and valued one detail. Jesus is passing by. In all of the noise, Jesus is passing by. Which means that the crowd 
is insignificant. Jesus is passing by. It means that dignity is insignificant. Jesus is passing by. It means that their cup, their beggar's cup, is insignificant. Jesus is passing by. So put yourself there in that place for a moment if you can. Close your eyes. Listen. And just at the edge of your hearing, you hear a commotion, and that commotion is coming nearer. And as it draws nearer, a million thoughts race through your mind. How big is this noise source? Am I out of the way enough, or will I get trampled? Are they rich or poor? Will they be able to help me? And just as you begin to process the sound, you start to hear conversations within the clamor. And there is a word that rings out like a foghorn in a black sea. Jesus. And you start then to recount everything that you've heard about Jesus at these city gates by the road. You start to recount, oh, he, he's the one that fed 5,000 with a couple loaves and a couple fish. He's the one that touched the children and made them well. He's the one that stood on the water and calmed the seas. He's the one who, only a few chapters earlier in Matthew 9, healed the sight of a couple blind men. And your heart skips a beat. Because Jesus is coming towards you. He is approaching. Now dwell on that reality, okay? That imagined reality for a moment. I think that's what's happening here in the story. But dwell on that for a moment. Because this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God is going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. The blind men were unable to follow Jesus amongst the crowd. They could not see. They could never make their way to Jesus. But Jesus is coming to them. And this is a physical, a literal reality in the story. Okay, he's actually walking toward them, but it's illustrating a spiritual reality that you could never make your way to Jesus. The scripture doesn't just say that you're not strong enough or you're not good enough or you're not smart enough. Okay, if that's all you get this morning, bummer. It says you're dead. And dead people don't get up and walk toward God to get better. They are entirely at His mercy. Entirely dependent on Him to make the first move. You couldn't move an inch toward him, but he is passing by you even today. So when you are with your eyes closed hearing, imagining the clamor of the crowd and recognizing Jesus is coming to you, not because of you, but in spite of you, you're, you're in his way, this is good news. Okay. We'll go back to the story. These two blind men, they're now alert as ever. They're rehearsing everything that they know and understand about Jesus. And they recognize that this is their moment. And so they just, they start yelling and pay close attention to what they say. Have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. Hold up. Shouldn't they be yelling, Jesus, we can't see and we want to see. 
Our eyes don't work. That's what I would expect to be their primary concern. Just like somebody who's waiting for an organ transplant cannot think about anything else until that is taking place. So these blind men must have been consumed with their blindness. It must have been front and center. And here they are crying out to the Savior, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem saying, Have mercy. Their prayer is a plea for mercy. They're appealing to the compassion of Christ. It's as though they're saying, we can't see Him, but maybe, maybe He'll see us. And you get the sense that they perceive themselves as the world perceives them. Worthy of a life on the side of the road. And in their plea, they're hoping against all hope that Christ will have compassion. And you see, they recognize that their true deepest need is not their eyesight. It's not the thing they wake up and are frustrated by every waking moment of every day. That is a practical need, but the deepest need is to be touched by Jesus. In their prayer, Lord have mercy, is a, it's actually been... It's a simple prayer the church has prayed for thousands of years, even long before these men were sitting beside the road. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. And it has been prayed for thousands of years before them and now after them because it is right there at the heart of the human condition, a desperate need for mercy. In Psalm 123, if you want to turn back there with me, that would be wonderful. In Psalm 123, as the, uh, it's a psalm of ascent, which means it is meant to be sung by the people on their way to worship, on their way to the temple. And so the people are instructed to sing these words of Psalm 123. And these words are, to you, I lift up my eyes. O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look at the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, O oh Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And you can just see, that's the same phrase, Kyrie Elias, and Lord have mercy. This prayer that the people are to be praying on their way to the temple is the prayer that the blind men sitting by the road are praying as the people with Jesus are on their way to the temple. And it's all about this sight. We lift up our eyes to the one who's enthroned in the heavens. We lift up our eyes. We look as servants to the hand of our master for every good thing. As maidservants to the hand of the mistress for every good thing. Until he has mercy. Now these blind men are the ones. They are the contemptuous ones. The outcasts crying out that Lord would have mercy. Now, we can be honest with ourselves. We need a lot of things, right? We can be honest. But what we really need is the mercy 
of the Creator. We need a lot of things, but what we really deeply need is to be shown mercy by a Savior. So I want to commend that prayer for your own use. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Whenever you sense your need, you might be inclined to work harder to try to fix things. That's my inclination. You might be inclined to list out your requests and pray through a list of requests. But deep down, your fundamental baseline request every time is, Lord, have mercy. So these blind men, they need Jesus to be merciful to them. They depend on his compassion. But notice how they address him. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. Okay, it's a title that Matthew has used before, but it's a title that Jesus has never used of himself. He prefers to use Son of Man, but in this moment, the title Son of David is now referring to the promise made to David that one of his descendants would reign on a throne forever and ever, and that his kingdom and his reign would have no end. Now, in one sense, there were many sons of David. You can read the genealogy of the sons of David. In another sense, though, there is one son of David that God's people were anticipating. It is in this sense that to call Jesus the son of David means that the blind men saw without sight Jesus to be the the long-awaited king. The rightful heir to the throne. The fulfillment of all of God's promises to David and his people. So what do these blind men see? They see their need. They see Jesus to be a merciful king. But what does the crowd see? What's the crowd notice? Okay, we need to get a bit imaginative because there's not a lot of detail about the crowd. But we should be particularly interested in how the crowd viewed these blind men and how the crowd, crowd viewed Jesus. Now clearly, if you want to look back there with me at verse uh, 31, the crowd viewed the blind men as a nuisance, as an inconvenience, Now, last time, it was the disciples who saw the little children as a nuisance, and Jesus rebuked them. This time, it's the crowd around Jesus that sees the blind men as a nuisance. And they might have heard uh, these blind men call out to Jesus, surely, and thought, Jesus is teaching us. Listen to his words. Or maybe they thought, Jesus is touching people as he goes. He's healing us. Just be quiet. Wait your turn. Or, Jesus is he's too important. We're, we're on the processional march to Jerusalem for Passover. Like, this is not the time, and it's not the place. But either way, the crowd saw a couple of blind bums on the side of the road that were in the way. And when you say it that way, we have to be confronted with our own perception of the outcasts in our world, in the real marginalized in our society. How do we 
view the poor, the handicapped, the disabled, the blind. Um, I got a newsletter a couple weeks ago that Oregon City is building basically an epicenter for homeless community services downtown. And I, I started to imagine, okay, how are people processing that news as they read this headline today? They're processing it wonderful. Let's just invite more homeless to Oregon City. And there's an opportunity here when we say, okay, the, that's how the crowd sees the, the outcast. That's how the crowd sees the blind or the homeless. To say, we're going to see them differently. One of the reasons we started a disability ministry at the church and have had a couple disability trainings now is to help us see people as not the crowd sees them, but as Jesus sees them. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment, that we would see them as Jesus sees them because the crowd gets it wrong. We'll see. We'll see that as the story unfolds. Now what then, okay, if, that's, if the crowd sees the blind man with disdain, how might they have seen Jesus? What do you think the crowd that's following or marching along with Jesus thought of him? Oh man, this is like Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, and we're on the way to the Super Bowl. I don't know what they, probably not that, but something along those lines, this is our hero. This is our champion. This guy touches and heals people. This guy feeds multitudes. This guy rebukes the stodgy religious leaders. He's the one that's going to relieve us from the tyranny of Rome. Now, I'm, I'm imagining this, okay? Certainly some in that crowd have seen Jesus for who He really is. Certainly some. But when they looked at the blind men, this crowd, and they looked at Jesus, and they looked back at the blind men who were calling out, and they looked back at Jesus, and they deemed the yelling as unruly and unbecoming of the majesty in their midst. Are they right or are they wrong for how they respond to the blind men? They might get Jesus right. He is majestic. He is worthy of honor and praise and adoration. But they're wrong about his nature. They're wrong about the nature of the king and the nature of his kingdom. You see, that's what Matthew's been doing all along. He has been right side upping. It's a new phrase. Don't use it outside of these walls. It will never go well for you. He has been turning right side up the real vision of what the kingdom is like. He's turning everybody's expectations of what it will be like when God reigns upside down. The way into the kingdom is not by shushing society's outcasts. The way into the kingdom is to acknowledge one's need to come utterly dependent to Christ. And when you get Christ wrong, you get a whole lot of other things wrong. 
And that's what's going on in the crowd. They see with their eyes Jesus, not as he truly is, but as they perceive him or want him to be. And that is a great danger to see and imagine Jesus to be something that he is not. So one of our commitments uh, every gathering is to lean into the scriptures. We open with the scriptures. We conclude with the scriptures. We spend time in the scriptures even now because we want to get Jesus right. We want to actually understand who he is and what he is about so that we don't shush the blind men, so that we aren't embarrassed when he does something unexpected, but so that we can celebrate the thing that is worth celebrating. So the crowds, they see this majesty of Jesus, they see these blind men yelling up and interrupting this majestic moment, and they shush the blind men. And what happens next is basically a typical Tuesday for every parent. The yelling gets louder. Be quiet. And these blind men are like, no way. This is, our, this is our one shot. The cries and the volume and the intensity of those cries increase. We are witnessing really in this story a conflict, a clashing of the kingdom. Because the healthy, the followers, don't have room in the kingdom for these blind outcasts. But their loud, persistent cries reach Jesus' ears. So, what do you think that he sees when he surveys this scene? Okay? What does Jesus see? You can almost, you can almost picture it. It's almost cartoon-like. Okay? The crowd surrounds Jesus, uh, and the cries of the blind men override the clamor of the crowd, and Jesus, on this walk, screeches to a halt. And somehow it's... They were walking, and then it's like, and the dust piles up as he hears this call. And those nearest to Jesus perhaps are befuddled by this sudden movement, and Jesus swims through the bodies of those closest to him. And the call, just as the call for mercy was earnest, Jesus' call, what do you want me to do for you, is also earnest. Oh, wouldn't you love for Jesus to ask you that question? What do you want me to do for you? Oh, don't give me stuff. We're going to be honest with ourselves. We got a list. Jesus, I want you to help me. I want you to fill in all the empty holes in my life. I want you to give me peace. I want you to feel all that is lacking in me. I want to know I am safe. I need a job. I want you to help me with school. I really want to be a better parent or a better spouse. I want to have my life count. But you have to notice that Jesus' question to these men doesn't just come out of nowhere. This isn't a blank check question. It comes in response to their cry for mercy. So before you come to Jesus with your honey-do list, you have to come knowing your need. You cannot call out to Jesus like the self-sufficient rich man we met a few chapters ago. You will go away sorrowful 
but you call out to Jesus like the blind man. And when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He's now face to face with these men. And their response is anticlimactic. They don't ask for the answers to life's big questions. They do express that fundamental need. What do you want me to do for you? We want to see again. Okay, my question now is for you. Does Jesus have time for this? Isn't Jesus like way more concerned about your heart than about your eyes? Isn't he like way more concerned about your life and like your eternal life than he is about your momentary life or enjoyment of it? Maybe you share that sentiment, but Jesus in their question has already seen their heart. He probably saw it the first time they opened their mouths. He saw this desperation. Their cries to him revealed that they knew who he was. They knew who he was about. They knew who they were. And they knew their need. And he knew that when they were pressured to keep quiet, but they were insistent, it was because of faith. It was because of hope against all hope. And when he finally stood face to face with them after making his way through the crowd, you can just see him. Can you picture him? Just melt. Verse 34 says, And in pity, Jesus touched their eyes. In pity, moved by compassion. The word is splachna, which literally refers to your bowels. And this is not a moment where there is a bowel movement. This is a moment where there is a movement of bowel, which means that there is this emotion. The center of the person is moved and out comes this pity and compassion from the very core, the very center of being. And he is moved not away from the men, nor moved to shush them, but move to reach out and touch them. Jesus has made these men as creator. Jesus made them to flourish, and he sees them and interacts with them, and they are languishing. He's made them for flourishing, and they are not. And Jesus, as God knows them better than they know themselves and values them more than they value themselves and loves them more than they love themselves. Now, I don't know how you picture God. Pretty busy guy. A lot going on in the world. Certainly, there's bigger problems to solve before eyesight for a couple poor beggars. Certainly there's wars that should really be resolved before he cares about my own inner needs. Maybe you picture him as not just a busy guy, but maybe a stingy grandpa. 
And you kind of could only come to your grandpa when you'd say, I've tried all of these things that I should have tried that you would tell me to try. I'm at the end of my rope. My ducks are in a row. Here's the case for why I need your help. Will you help me? But in either case, you probably have considered him as an untouchable, unapproachable father who will be annoyed with you because you're not all put together. But the Jesus that we've been introduced to in Matthew's gospel is not that. In Matthew 11, Jesus described himself, and he only does this once. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and this is his only self-revelation about his heart, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. You and I do not call out for mercy because we just simply don't believe that he's the merciful king. He's the king, maybe, but he couldn't be merciful. He couldn't really care. But the character of Jesus is one that invites the weary and the heavy laden. It invites the blind and the children. He has not turned them away, nor is he ambivalent. He is inviting you. He's gentle and lowly. He understands you. He gets you. And here the merciful king reaches out and touches these men. And we've talked about the significance of Jesus' touch before, but it is this moment where broken things are put back into place. When the Creator is re-engaged with creation in a physical sense, righting all wrongs. When He reaches out to touch, it is the finger of God restoring life in a broken world. The blind men are no longer blind. They get up and they follow Him. It is truly through His touch that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in to earth. The men get up and follow Jesus. There you have it. That's the last miraculous healing, the last time that this happens in Jesus' life before He dies on the cross at the end of Matthew's Gospel. I think the remarkable thing is that Jesus is on this journey back to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die. And my plan for, like, if I know, my, if I know I've got a certain amount of time left, my plan is not really to just be distracted by every person on the side of the road. I would want to spend it with my friends, my family, eating my favorite meals. And Jesus knows his days are numbered and these blind men are not in his way, and they're not an inconvenience for him. In fact, it kind of seems like he's hunting them down. Let me get as many as I can on my way to Jerusalem. And in that sense, he really is the merciful 
king. The kingdom of heaven is so radically right side up that we can hardly recognize it. We can hardly see it as it really is because our eyes work. And it doesn't make sense when you look at the world around you and impose its rules and norms over the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, you, your eyes need to be fixed because the kingdom of heaven is so different than the world and the kingdom you have created. The king of this kingdom has come not to be served by men, but to serve. And he's going out of his way to include a couple nameless blind men to join the procession. Now, how does that make you feel? Okay, at the end of this story. My guess is either you'll feel thrilled or threatened. There's two options. It's my perception. Because if you in this story identify with the blind men who just need Jesus to show up and touch them, you're thrilled. He's passing by today. Call out for him. If on the other hand, you identify with those in the crowd who kind of have things put together, who are with Jesus because Jesus is popular or Jesus is the right way or maybe the, the better way to a moral life and a moral society, you're doing what everyone else is doing, then you should perhaps feel threatened. That perhaps the kingdom of heaven does not include people who are spectators or onlookers because Jesus won't be used. And I want you to notice this here. The main point in the story is not the crowd. They hardly get a line. They don't get any resolution. The main point certainly seems to be the relationship between the blind men and the kindness of Jesus. And we can have this conversation this morning because the compassion of Jesus, his pity for these blind men did not run out in that moment. He's on his way to a cross where he will die in your place for your sin. And even there, his mercy does not stop. Because he then rises again to a new life and is inviting, okay? He's doing this, what can I do for you? He's inviting you in to this new way of being. And the question is, do you know your need? Will you call out to him for mercy? He's passing by. It's already happening. Will you call out for him? Lord, have mercy. And when he meets you, will you get up and follow him? The merciful king is your only shot. Lord, have mercy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you open our eyes to see you as you really are, to recognize you as the one who will show us compassion, as the one who has all power to do anything, but the one who also is moved by compassion toward us. Would we run to you, yell out to you, Lord, have mercy.
And would you show yourself again and again to be the one full of compassion toward us. Do not turn us away. May we find you to be, prove yourself to be, gentle and lowly in heart, that our souls might find rest, that we might be at peace in our outer selves and at our deepest self, that we might flourish in this new way of being in your kingdom as we follow you. Would you help us and give us strength? In your name we pray. Amen.